Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Enjoy a tall, cool dude. What is this? What, what are we doing? What in God's name are we doing? What? Our lives. What, what kind of lives are these? We're like children. We're not men. No, we're not. We're not men. It's the nightcap. Are we going to be sitting here when we're 60 like two idiots? We should be having dinner with our sons when we're 60. We're pathetic, you know that? Yeah, like I don't know that I'm pathetic. On WGR Sports Radio 550. So then you asked yourselves, isn't there something more to life? Yes! Yeah, well, let me clue you in on something. There isn't. There isn't. This is it. Sabres and Bills, me, the station... This is life. It's not going too great right now, isn't it? Or is it? I just want a playoff team. You know, I was in here with uh, my buddy Nick Wozanowski, who contributes here at WGR, uh, Bison's producer over at ESPN 1520. And we're talking about... I don't, I don't remember how it came up. Maybe it was Matt Duchesne. We're talking about free agents or something. Um... The topic that I've kind of had on the station or on the show the last couple nights, do well, like what are what are the moves that happen that make Saber fans get hyped up for next season? And is that out there? And I put together a roster best I could, it kept friendly, and that came out. And we're we're again like we wind up talking about Sergey Bobrovsky, and I, it's not a realistic conversation, and. It's not even one I really want to have, but it keeps coming into my mind as something like, if you really, really, really wanted to say whatever to patience and I got to win right now, then like that's the move. But um, I got to think anyway that anyone watching these Stanley Cup playoffs right now, which we'll talk a lot about tonight, the, uh, the San Jose Sharks have an awesome roster. Eric Carlson, Burns, Thornton, Couture, Hurdle, Meyer, Kane... Pavelski, like they just have loads of talent. And they were two games away from the Stanley Cup final, despite the fact they had the worst goaltending in the league this year. So I bet they're going to back up the Brinks truck for uh, Bobrovsky anyway. So it's not even a conversation worth having. Shouldn't have brought it up. It's the nightcap with Jody Biasi here on WGR. Full show tonight till 9 o'clock. And Ryan O'Reilly's the topic of today. He's come up on social media, and for good reason. We have to look back on it because it has been a bad year for the Sabres, take out a month or two, and it's been an overly negative uh, year. And part of that, to me, has been fueled by the fact that you traded one of your best players off your roster, and now we have to watch him go to the Stanley Cup Final, and now we have to root for him because they're playing the Boston Bruins, and nobody wants the Boston Bruins to win. It's funny, the Bruins have probably, like, if you were the Bo- if the Boston Bruins, the hockey gods, were trying to force Sabre fans to root for the Bruins, like this is the postseason that would have happened. Got Game 7 against the Toronto Maple Leafs. 
It made you think, didn't it? Uh, an Eastern Conference Finals against the Carolina Hurricanes, who stole our Stanley Cup in 2006. Made you think a little bit, didn't it? And to a lesser extent, now you've got O'Reilly, and I, I'm trying... I'm trying to get a sense of whether we're actually rooting for him or are we rooting against him because he was a former Sabre and we don't want to see him have success now. I'm not in that mode, but I can see why some fans uh, kind of live in that moment and live in that uh, way of thinking. The former Sabre, I'm not rooting for him to win. Guy who didn't get it done here, why would I root for him to win? But I always had profound respect for O'Reilly as a player, his style of play, the fact that he was able to be so productive, so good, despite the fact that... He is very limited with his skating with his foot speed. But he has really become a great player in this league. And we gave up on him. He, it's, it's hard. You can't really say he gave up on us. Because sure, in his mind and mentally, maybe he was disconnected. Maybe he was only thinking negative thoughts. And he just wanted out of here. And that maybe all came out in that press conference last year where he said he lost his love for the game. It's amazing how one media scrum kind of changed the course of Sabre history and the season that came afterwards. Because if he doesn't say those things, I wonder if he is still here. That brought out a lot of emotions in fans. Like You've got a leader type on this, on this team. You've got a guy who, even the year before, or... A couple years before, like remember, remember Sam Reinhardt's rookie year, the O'Reilly practices. O'Reilly was keeping Reinhardt afterwards, teaching him some stuff, face-offs, hot shooting, like everything. And we looked at that and said, like, okay, this is the guy. We talked about him as being the captain, as being a guy we wanted to be the captain. Now I know we've done that before with other players, like some of Gergensen's, for instance. But like we had that talk, we all had those thoughts. Of what type of guy that was. And the losing beat him down. And we all drilled him for it. And that's always been a tough, tough one for me to swallow. Because he was just being honest in the moment. Now, Bulldog brought up an interesting thought today that I hadn't really thought of. That, hey, maybe it was calculated. Maybe Ryan O'Reilly, just he wanted out and he was thinking to himself, all right, how do I accomplish that? They didn't trade me at the trade deadline. They have me under contract for a really long time. I'm still a productive player. I'm not going to give up on the ice. I'm still going to go out there and put up 60-point seasons and play the hardest minutes and play the toughest matchups. So what do I got to do to get traded? I, In his mind, he could have thought to himself, I need to make it clear to this team, to this organization, that I'm sick of it and that I need to change the scenery. And that's what that scrum sounded like. That he wanted a change of scenery. But they didn't have to honor it. And that's always been my big problem with the trade. You were never in a big rush to do it. Why did you have to do it right then and there? And clearly, Bottrell did it right then and there. Because he was satisfied with the return. But to this point, we've never heard about... O'Reilly ever making a demand to be traded. And to me, if that was not the case, he is your player. You have the right to keep him until the end of his contract. And if he doesn't want to play for you, tough. You're going to go out there and produce. Because he was doing it anyway. And if you want to be happier, or if the reason you're not happy is our team continues to lose and lose and lose, well, guess what? You'll be happy when we start to 
surround you with good players. Like, I needed, what I needed the Sabres to do and what I wanted the Sabres to do was not to trade O'Reilly. It was to make him happier by adding guys like Jeff Skinner around him. I always loved the idea of Jeff Skinner, but the idea of Jeff Skinner in my mind was in addition to what you already had. It was not a replacement to what you already had. Because I love Skinner, and a lot of fans do, and we all want him back here. And he put up a 40-goal season. But in terms of an overall hockey player, he is not what Ryan O'Reilly is. I mean, Ryan O'Reilly is a Selkie Trophy nominee who probably won't win the Conn Smythe, but will be in the running for it, depending on how good a Stanley Cup final he has. And he is now the number one center on a team that is in the Stanley Cup final. And this is a team here that for years and years and years, we wanted that true number one center, that big two-way scoring number one center. And we had two of them, which was awesome. And the team still stunk, I know. But that was not the issue. Their top forwards, including O'Reilly, and you can throw Kane in this to a lesser extent as well, them not being good enough to overcome how bad the rest of the team was, to me is not the same as the reason that they were bad. They were not bad because of Ryan O'Reilly. They were not bad because Ryan O'Reilly was playing 23 minutes a night. I have the same line of thinking right now with Rasmus Ristolainen. I don't think they are bad right now because Rasmus Ristolainen is on the team. I think it's because of the role he's in, and I think it's because of what's around him. And O'Reilly was never a bad player here. He was always a very good player. And the fact to me that he was not good enough to basically lift up the team himself from what they really were, which was a flawed roster with a bad blue line, bad goaltending, and very bad bottom six scoring. He was not going to ever be good enough in that spot, nor would almost any player, to give all of us what we wanted result-wise and give himself what he wanted result-wise. So I can see how he got sick of it, and I just did not want to see the the team do it, and as we're sitting here reminiscing on it, and as we're sitting here now watching him go to the Stanley Cup final, it just reminds me of those emotions of what happened in the moment. And I was not as negative on it at the time because there were some unknown pieces there. Like when that when that package first came back, even though I wasn't on board with the idea of trading him, like it sounded like a pretty good deal to me. And I could see why Botra went for it. Because Thompson is an intriguing prospect. Now, he should not have been here all year, maybe for a little bit. He should not have been here all year, but at the time, I can see why he would have been an intriguing prospect. The guy's 6'6", he can stick handle in a phone booth, and he's got a rocket of a shot. The problem is, he just has no idea how to put it together. He has a very bad time, you know, controlling the puck. He has a very bad time getting getting into open space. And for that reason, he struggled all year. But at the time, like what was the deal at the time? And in that moment, I liked it because, or I was on, I was okay with it because Thompson looked like a very high ceiling prospect, and you were getting a first round pick from a team that I you didn't really predict they would make the Stanley Cup final. Did anybody think that? 
We thought they'd be pretty good, even a playoff team. But you were maybe expecting that pick to be, I was thinking, I was thinking 16 to 20, 22, like middle of the first round. And that pick's going to end up being right at the bottom of the first round. And that kind of stinks in its own way. Um, Sabotka I was never a big fan of, but I guess I didn't know a ton about what he was. I'd heard his name a bunch. Berglund, I thought was a good idea to bring in here, almost like a bridge-type second-line center until Casey Middlestat was ready to take over that role. And Berglund was a guy who had scored 20 goals several times in his career, and that just did not go well at all. I don't think I could have foreseen or anyone could have foreseen it going that bad, where he quits the sport two months in, not even two months in, and you had the first round pick and you had Tage Thompson. Like, I, it was okay. It was pretty good. And it started out well. But at the end of the day, the original idea of trading your second best forward on a team that already had enough holes and all you did was create another one. And that is why I just never like philosophically the idea of, hey, my team is bad. What am I going to do? I'm going to trade the guys at the top. I'm going to trade the leaders because they're clearly not good enough to lead us to the right place. Well, if you look at the bottom of the roster, if you look at what's around those guys, it's not always the top guy's fault. It's not always the guys that has values fault. And that's kind of the way I'm thinking about Ristolainen right now to make that comparison. I do not want to see them, and I've said this before, but I do not want to see them make a similar type of trade of what they did with Ryan O'Reilly last offseason to this offseason with Rasmus Ristolainen. It's a different scenario. I think O'Reilly is a better player. I think O'Reilly is better at what he does. I think O'Reilly's proven this year not only was he a great second-line center, which I think ideally you would have liked him to be here in Buffalo. He had to play first-line center while Eichel was a teenager, fine. But if he was still on this team, he would have been the second-line center, and he would have been great at it. But not only was he good at that, he's proven this year, playing with Jaden Schwartz and Vladimir Tarasenko, that you give him some good wingers, and he's going to produce as a number one center. 77 points. Almost a point-a-game player. Selkie nominee. 14 points in the playoffs in 17 games. He proved that. And the only difference there with Ristolainen is even though I think Ristolainen has value, I think Ristolainen is a good player. I think he's a overused player. I think he's in, you know, I think he gets more criticism than he deserves. He is not, to me, the type of player that if you trade him to Tampa Bay, for instance, or some other team that you're going to watch him and go, wow, this guy is just going to turn into an award winner. And that it's weird that this ha- that's happened in the last year. Because not just O'Reilly, but Leonard's a Vezna nominee. And O'Reilly's a Selkie nominee. And you're probably kicking yourself for those two guys right there. Two guys that are, of, of this year, of the best at what they do. And I never think Ristolainen's going to be that level of player. I think he's going to be... Ideally, on a good team, a second line, or a second pair defenseman. And for years and years and years, I've wanted to see him in that role here in Buffalo. And coach after coach has been unable to do it. But really, when you dig into that, and the reason I don't want to see him traded is 
He's never really had the opportunity to take that lesser role. No coach has really ever had the opportunity to drop his minutes into a lesser role because they've never had a defenseman that you could say, hey, I could put him above Ristolainen, and this is how we're going to get his minutes down to 20 instead of 25. That guy's never existed. Would he have been a more productive player playing on a second pair, playing 19 minutes, if they kicked Zach Bogosian up to the first line, first pair? He definitely would have been. But you would have suffered mightily if you had Zach Bogosian playing on your top pair 24, 25 minutes a night. The guy's injury history probably wouldn't have made it through that far anyway playing that role. And there was no other defenseman other than that that you really could even argue that you would have put in that position. They're not going to make Casey Nelson a top pair defenseman playing 25 minutes a night. They're not going to make Josh Georges, well, I mean, I guess they had to make him a top pair defenseman, so that's a bad example because they did do that. Um... They're not going to make Jake McCabe a top pair defenseman. 25 minutes a night. Those guys are not capable of that. So just because someone has had to do it, and maybe Ristolainen is the best of a bad blue line, does not mean he is the problem with the blue line. His role is a problem with the blue line, but he himself, I think there's a difference. I don't think him himself is a problem with what you have. And that's kind of how I thought of O'Reilly last year. Maybe his position on the team being so relied upon, playing the most minutes in the league as a forward, maybe that role that he has to take on hinders your team. But he himself does not do that. And the best way to get those players down to the roles you want them in, like Aristolainen this year, like how do you do that? How do you get him to a second pair spot? You add above him. And he gets pushed down. You don't just trade him away, and then suddenly now I've got to replace him too. Now if you're getting second line center, I've said this, second line center, second line winger even, if you're getting a top six guy that's going to give me 50, 60, hopefully even 70, but that seems ambitious. If you're going to give me a really good scoring forward in you know, in a trade for Ristolainen, then it's a good idea. But just to trade him for the sake of trading him like they did last year with the guy who is now going to the Stanley Cup Finals as a number one center in Ryan O'Reilly, that is not a good idea. They do not need to be doing that two years in a row. That's a bad idea. And Bacharel really, he should use the St. Louis Blues as a lesson of what to do this offseason. If the Penguins want to trade Phil Kessel, give them exactly what they want. Yep, give them exactly what they want. But guess what? Pittsburgh, you know what you're going to do? We're going to make you take Marco Scandella. Or we're going to make you take Zach Bogosian. Probably unrealistic, but maybe try to make them take Kyle Oposo's contract. Like I said, probably unrealistic, but maybe throw that out there. So we're going to give you exactly what you want, but you're going to take five, six million dollars worth of cap back to even it out. Because the Sabres did the opposite of this twice last year. It wasn't just the O'Reilly contract. They took on Berglund's contract. They took on Sabotka's contract. And with Thompson added, at the end of the day, the Blues actually saved money on the short term in that deal. The Blues saved money on their cap by making the Ryan O'Reilly trade this season. Now, of course, O'Reilly's contract is longer, so that'll, there'll be a difference there. But it was, it was smaller this year. The Sabres also, when they traded for Connor Sherry took on Matt Hunwick's contract twice. They made deals that the other team 
caved on some value so that you would take contracts they didn't want. And that's what I want Bottrell to take as a lesson from last year. He should do the opposite of that this year. At least I prefer him to do the opposite of that this year. Like a Phil Castle trade, just for example. If you don't want Phil Castle, fine. But the contract and the player and the the scenario, the the ideology is what I'm talking about here. If you're going to acquire a player like that, maybe sacrifice some value in the name of getting bad contracts off your roster. Because we're getting close, and the Sabres are getting close to a point in time where we don't have any bad contracts on their team. Molson's contract is gone. Pominville's contract is gone. Hodson's buyout is almost over. Bogosian's contract has one year left on it. Scandella's contract has one year left on it. The only big bad, bad deal you're looking at that has a lot of years left on it is Kyle Poso's deal. And he's got about three more years, I think, left on there. But that's all you're looking at right now. And, well, I guess Saboka. Saboka only one more year, though. Saboka one more year. Create some cap that way. Sacrifice some value if you need to. And do the opposite of what you did in the offseason last year. Don't be the team that is taking on the bad contracts. Be the team that somehow is accomplishing what they want to do while also giving away bad contracts. Making teams take those back. And that's kind of the way I'm thinking about what I want the Sabres to do in this offseason. And one more point on Ristolainen. And about how they've really never had defensemen to eat those minutes that he takes. This is finally, like, this would be the the most opportune time to do that this season. This season, more than any, would be the big opportunity to you really take away some of his minutes. Really push him down to a second power play defenseman, which actually happened this past year. Push him down to even a second pair uh, penalty kill guy if you want. Be a guy that is not always on the ice, whether you're down one or up one in the last minutes of games. Because every single time for the last six years, when the Sabres have been down a goal or up a goal, Rasmus Ristolainen has been on the ice. He can be on my team. But guess what? Now I do have Dalene on my team, who has the capability of playing the left side and the right side. He's 19 years old, I know, but he has... I mean, if he takes any sort of step from what he was last year, he's going to go from a really good defenseman to he might even be all-star level by this next year. He'll get there, though, at some point. So we know that's coming, and we know he's here already. But now you also have Montour, who I think is pretty good. I don't also think he's a number one defenseman, but he could ease some of that burden on Ristolainen, and I think he did a little bit of that in the short time he was here last year, whether that be power play time or just minutes five on five. So I do not think the Sabres have a need to trade Ristolainen right now. If you can find a way to accomplish what you want to do without giving him up, then I don't think you have to do that because they thought they had to trade O'Reilly last year, and that turned out to be a big, fat mistake. Because now you got an 80-point player that's off playing in the Stanley Cup Final, and all we have to show for it is a bad Saboka contract and Tage Thompson. And a very late first-round pick. And that sucks. 
And that sucks. 803050 is the phone number if you want to get in on the conversation, talking about the Sabres and their plans for the offseason and reminiscing on the Ryan O'Reilly trade. Put back some audio for you throughout the show tonight. Paul Maurice, uh, former Winnipeg Jets coach, talking some Ralph Kruger. Uh, or Ryan, Ryan Smith, I'm sorry, Ryan Smith, former Oilers player, talking some Ralph Kruger. was on at the Instigators. We'll get that to you at some point tonight. Uh, your call is 803-0550. That's the phone number. More next here on the Nightcap. Jody Biasi here on WGR. Crystal's like anyone else. He has his faults. He has to continue to improve his game, just like so many of our other players. But what we've loved seeing him in action is, you know, when he's in that matchup situation. I think about it end of February, I believe it was. We played back-to-back games against Tampa Bay and Washington. And, you know, he had the specific role of playing against Kucherov, playing against Ovechkin. And I think when he has that specific matchup, uh, he does an amazing job with that. Jason Bottrell on Friday with Howard and Jeremy. I, I got to... I mean, I get what he's trying to do. He's trying to talk up Bristol Linen either because he's his own player or maybe he's trying to draw up interest around the league. I don't know. But, yeah, like he, there is something to be said for the fact that he plays against those players. He is playing against the top players in the world every single night, except when they play like really bad teams like the Coyotes and you, you know the teams, the ones that just not that good. But when the Penguins come to town, he's playing against Crosby. When the Capitals come to town, he's playing against Ovechkin. When the Leafs come to town, he's playing against Matthews and Marner. And he's playing against Patrick Laine. And all these great elite-level players he's playing against. And I guess the way I think about that, like when I think about like myself and like when I play hockey... Um, even nowadays, now that I'm just playing in like like casual leagues, you play against a really bad team. And I like to think of myself as a pretty good player. And if you're playing against one of the really bad teams in the league, like maybe a beginner squad, and you, you feel pretty good. Like the ice is more open, you've got more room to to move around. Your creativity comes out. And when you're playing a lower level of competition, you know you perform better. That's simple logic. And then there's other games when I'm playing and we're playing against like a super good team, and you, I just, you can't keep the the puck on your stick long enough because there's a guy right on right down on you. Um, you can't get a shot off because there's always a stick right in the lane, and it's tougher and you don't feel like you're that good because of the competition you're playing against. And I feel like Ristolainen could be kind of like in a way a victim of that kind of thinking. He is always playing against the top competition and has been for his entire career that I still don't think we know what he looks like playing against lesser competition. And I think he could really flourish in that situation. I think of the Nashville Predators for this. They have a great blue line. Top to bottom. But and like a guy like Ryan Ellis, for instance, his name was tossed out in trade chatter the other day. I think Edmonton writer. Um, that tends to happen a lot. But Ryan Ellis is a player that I think about from Nashville. And he is a second-pair defenseman who even sometimes plays on their third pair. And he's very good offensively, but he's undersized, and he never gets the tough matchups. He's allowed to, because of Nashville's depth and because of how good their blue line is at the top, he's allowed to settle in there, play lesser minutes, still like significant minutes. Like He's still playing 19, 20 minutes a night. He's still playing on the power play. And he is kind of in an environment that he's allowed to get the best out of his game. And I think to myself, well, if Ryan Ellis were here, he was 11th overall pick, 
few years back. So that he very well could have been wrist aligned in here. What if Ryan Ellis was a Sabre these last six years? His reputation in Nashville right now is a very good possession player. It's a very good offensive defenseman. And not no superstar by any means, but a guy you love to have on your team. What happens if he's here in the last five years? You know what's happening here? Ryan Ellis is playing against the top players. And Ryan Ellis is probably playing 24 or 25 minutes a night. Even though he's not quite the type same quite the uh, same defenseman that Ristolainen is, he'd be playing big minutes. And he'd be playing tougher matchups. And I'm sure he wouldn't be flourishing as much as he is in, in Nashville. So to me, it's just as much about environment and who you're playing against and how your team optimizes your skill set and how they utilize it. Just as much as it is what you are as a player. And I think Ristolainen has to some extent, fallen victim of that during his career here in Buffalo, and I don't want to see them make the same mistake, that they, a similar mistake that they did uh, with O'Reilly last year. 803-0550 is the phone number if you want to get in on the conversation. Let's start with Jonathan and Alden. Jonathan, you're on the nightcap. What's up? Hey, Joe. Um, I absolutely agree with you. I think the solution is to put Ristolainen down the number two pair. However, I think it's going to be very difficult to find the number one pair D to go Dolan's going to be on the number one line, but I'm looking at um, NHL defensive free agents. Carlson's the number one free agent. I don't think mm-hmm. we're going to get him, but um, do you think we could possibly bring back Tyler Myers or Jacob Trubot to be that number one defenseman? So um, Dolan can, so, so Russell Line can be number two, go back to the 2D, or do you think we should trade? Or um, I, I think I, the names you brought up, like Truba, I think is the name there. Like, Truba is better, I think, than Ristolainen is. Is he a number one pair defenseman? I think he's just borderline, like, he's getting there. And he would, again, kind of allow me to decrease his minutes and get him into a role, get Ristolainen talking about here, into a role that I think is better suited for him. And Truba would do that. Myers, to me, is kind of the same thing. I've compared Ristolainen and Myers several times. They're both good defensemen. They're both guys that if you're good, you would love to have on your second pair. Winnipeg has loved having Tyler Myers on their second pair. They'd probably hate him as a top pair defenseman. It's all about where you play the guy. We like Jake McCabe. All of us. I like him. He's a good player. If he's been, if he would have been playing top pair minutes for the last five years, we'd all want him out of town. We'd all want him out. And... Yeah, there's some guys out there. Like Carlson would solve this in a heartbeat, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think he's going to Tampa. That connection's been made several times. Tampa seems to be trying to clear the decks for a big free agent, or maybe they're trying to do it to reside Braden Point. That could also be the case. But they're desperately trying to get rid of Callahan's contract, and Carlson seems to want to go there. So I don't know if you're going to get a real shot at him. If Tampa can't find a way to make that work, and you want to sign him big, I, I'm not against that. That's going to cost you big time, especially because, I, I don't know, I, it, it'd be hard for me to think you could convince Carlson to come here with the present situation unless you are really overpaying. Like, if you're giving him, I don't even know what number to throw out here. Like, if you're giving him $10 million, I almost feel like someone else would give him that too. But, like, a, a number like that. Like, if you're going to pay him huge money, 
then that would absolutely solve that problem. Now, some of the other names you mentioned, like Truba would do that. Myers, I don't think, would do that. And there really isn't another defenseman that I think is capable. Matt Larkin from Hockey News, who I think we're hoping to get on the station uh, next week, did a top 30 list, top 30 unrestricted free agents going into the offseason. He has Carlson number one. And then if you continue to scroll down the list, there's only one other defenseman in the top 15, and that's Jake Gardner. And I don't think he's going to solve that issue either. I think a lot of the guys that you would find in free agency are kind of like what you have in Risto. Guys that are pretty good, but you might get mad at if you had to play them like big minutes. Like You would preferably want the guys that you would sign a free agency to be more second, third pair guys. So I don't know if free agency is the way to solve that. To me, it's probably unlikely that would be how you do it. And I don't really know, other than Truba, if there is defensemen out there that could be available that could solve this issue. I think you just might have to eat it and hope that Montour stays healthy and hope that Montour really, you know, in a full year here, gives you more than what Ristolainen's given you. And Darlene continues to take steps. I think that's going to happen anyway. That almost seems like a sure thing, given what he's done and who he is. But I think like that's your best hope for solving the Ristolainen ice time issue. If they're even if they even get that far, I mean they might trade him this off season. They really might. But I just keep thinking about how that leaves your blue line. Your blue line's already been bad. And like, what are you left with? If they traded Ristolainen tomorrow, and let's say for sake of conversation, they did the O'Reilly trade because we talked a lot about and reminisced a lot about the O'Reilly trade. Like, let's say they do that again. They trade Ristolainen. For, to a good team, for a first-round pick, a B-level prospect, and a roster player. Like a Berglund. A guy that, eh, he could produce for me. Like, Berglund didn't work out, but I feel like six or seven times out of ten you trade for that player, you're going to get at least something. Um, so let's say they do that. They trade for a, a, a 30, 40-point guy, a B-level prospect, and a first-round pick. Like a late first round pick because it's a good team. And that's the Ristolainen trade. What does their blue line look like tomorrow? It's already injured, but what does it look like? Dalene is going to be a top pair defenseman for you now. No doubt. And I think that's fine. We're all fine with that anyway. Montour has got to be your top right shot. D. You're going to have Bogosian now. Again, playing second pair minutes. And that's something that I would like to see them you know, get away from. The way they have it set up right now, Bogosian is able to play third pair because you have Montour and Ristolainen ahead of him as right shot defensemen. So you trade Ristolainen, Bogosian's back playing top four. I still, I, I'm hoping they, <laughs> I'm hoping Lawrence Pilot's a second pair guy. I think he should be. I think he's good enough to do that. I'm just not sure that they're going to utilize him in that situation. I'm, ho- I'm optimistic enough about Ralph Kruger to think he'll be smart enough to do that. So let's say for, let's say Ralph Kruger is going to be the smart guy that we all, you know, that he sounds like and we all think he could be, and he uses Lawrence Pilot as a second pair guy. Lawrence Pilot and Bogosian's my second pair, and then what am I left with? McCabe, Casey Nelson, Scandella to round out the rest of it. That's not that good. It really isn't. It's not that good. And I don't know how much better it is with Ristolainen here, but I do think it's better. And if that's been my biggest weakness for years and years, I don't want to deplete it. Unless I'm really going to get a big payoff somewhere else. And really, I think the O'Reilly trade has made a lot of... or the O'Reilly making the Stanley Cup final 
has made a lot of people think about that trade and looking back on that trade today. And for me, it has done that, but it also has me thinking a lot about Ristolainen and the talks surrounding him and how I just really don't want to see the Sabres do the same thing. And I want them to learn from their mistakes. And one big mistake that they made was trading a guy because of personality issues and because of locker room issues, if there even were any, as opposed to on-ice production. That's what I want them to value, on-ice production. And how you think you get the most out of your team on the ice. And they kind of ignored that when they traded O'Reilly. And I'm hoping that they don't do you know, quite the same thing uh, on Ristolainen. Um, we will talk some more. Ralph Kruger, I want to get into him a little bit because it's been a week. And it seems like it's been longer, but it's been one week since the Sabres got him. And I'm still feeling good about it. There's nothing that's really happened, I know. But uh, quick segment coming back. I got a couple words just, just on how many people we've heard talk about him. Today it was Ryan Smith. Yesterday it was Paul Maurice. Um, Miroslav Shatan. Just n- loads and loads of people that we've heard here on the station talk up Ralph Kruger. And it's not just the amount of people talking him up, but it's what they're saying. Because anyone you hire... You know, there'll be people talking, saying this is a good hire for the Sabres. But it's what they've been saying about Kruger. I'll expand on that a little bit when we come back. And we'll switch to some football, too, in hour number two. It's the Nightcap, Jody Biasi here on WG. That ability to connect with somebody, not just a player, but part of the staff, is the new generation of the game. And it may be better. It's a more personal way to deal daily. And I'm saying all these things, but he's not soft. Like, Ralph has no problem going in and letting it fly. And he can hold a room pretty good, too. And, you know, he's a big guy. He's got lots of energy. He's a real fit guy. He can handle himself. So I think the balance that he has there is going to work real well. I only know a few of the Sabres players having had them, but I think they're really going to enjoy the direction he'll take the team. That's the Winnipeg Jets head coach, Paul Maurice, talking about Ralph Kruger. They have a connection because Kruger was the head coach of Team North America at the World Cup of Hockey, and Maurice was an assistant coach on that team. That's interesting in its own right. I mean, Paul Maurice has been around the block. He's been here for a while. Wasn't he the youngest coach in league history, or if he not was not, he was uh, he was close. He was in his 20s when he started. Paul Maurice. Let's see. 1995, he started coaching the Hartford Whalers at the age of 29. He has coached over 1,500 games in the NHL. Um, And that guy was an assistant coach for Ralph Kruger, who's coached 48 games in the NHL. I think that says something in in its own right about about Kruger. But anyways, the one thing, that the reason I played that clip and the reason that I want to talk about Kruger here for a second is one thing I'm hearing guest after guest after guest that knows about Kruger say Ryan Smith today, former player, uh, for, played with or played for Kruger. Paul Maurice worked with him on a be- on the bench. Miroslav Shatan hired him to work as his head coach at the World Cup of Hockey, and several other guys that have said kind of the same thing that he is the perfect person you need to connect with this generation and with this like the the modern day style of coaching which is not berate your players and make them run bag skates and do sprints and go back and forth and like punish them that way. 
but it's like re- a real connection with your players, relate to them, while also commanding respect at the same time. And what everyone I've heard sounds like on him, and even former players, Ryan Nugent Hopkins wasn't on our station, but he talked to Greg Wyshynski of ESPN about this. He's like the perfect guy for that. And I think that can only be a good thing. Um, that can only be at least a little feather in the cap for the Sabres as they go into Skinner negotiations. That, hey, you've got a coach now. Like, if you want to play in the NHL, it sounds like he's a player's coach to some extent. And that you'll like playing for him. Now let's work on money. Like, that could be something that Skinner thinks about. And clearly, it had to have some sort of importance because... Bottrell said that Skinner wanted to know who the coach was before he re-signed. So I'm not saying it would be a major factor, but his style, uh, Ralph Kruger's that is, his style of coaching, I think can only be a good thing, even if it's only a really small uh, good thing in uh, trying to re-sign Skinner. And I'm looking forward to that, like him as the coach. Like that's why I wanted him. Um, It was different, but it's also stylistically a good idea, and it sounds like a good fit when you have a young core here when you've got your two most important players being an average age of 20. Darlene's 18, Eichel's 22. Um, It's young guys, and it's a young man's game, and the one thing the Sabres are doing is they're building a core of good young players. They just have to figure out the rest of it. They've done a brutal job at it. And that's kind of what we've been talking about here in the first hour. Ristolainen, looking back on the Ryan O'Reilly trade. We'll continue to talk some NHL playoffs too. The Bruins and the in the Blues will uh, play game one on Monday. We will have that here on WGR on Memorial Day. Stanley Cup Finals get going on Memorial Day. It's supposed to rain! I saw Nate Geary tweet this, our own Nate Geary from WGR. He tweeted this a couple minutes ago. It's supposed to rain on Memorial Day. And that sucks. Man, that sucks. Memorial Day is one of the best holidays. It's not my favorite holiday. I would not put it number one. But it's up there. It's maybe number two or number three. And you kill it when it rains. Almost completely. Um, I might have to drive. I'm not even kidding. I might have to drive somewhere where it's not raining. Just because I love it so much. And uh, it'll be a drag. At least I'll have the day off. Although, I am look- I don't know what Nate's talking about. Because now I'm looking at it. And it says mostly cloudy. 10% chance of showers. I don't know what Nate's talking about. Maybe it's not going to rain. It's going to rain on the weekend beforehand. There's your uh, there's your weather. We weather talk for the night. Hour number two of the nightcap coming up next. We'll talk a little bit of football towards the back half, um, but more on Ryan O'Reilly reminiscing on that trade. And Rasmus Ristolainen and some comparables between him and his situation now and what O'Reilly was uh, last year. We'll continue to talk about that. 803-0550 is the phone number if you want to continue to get on the conversation. You can also text us at 550-550, or you can hit me up on Twitter at SneakyJoeWGR. It's the Nightcap with Jody Biasi here on WGR. WGR. Uh, give me the offensive lineman for the Packers who was last introduced during pregame introductions. Kramer. Not as incorrect. That's a good guess, Kramer, because, you know, he was on that line. So it's not Kramer, and it's not Forrest Gregg. And it's not Thurston. So there's only a couple more. Time to relax and rewind. Rick, the final Packer offensive lineman announced during pregame introductions in Super Bowl One. Howard Simon. No, it's not him. There's only one more. There is only one more. There is, that's not it. One more. It's not Kramer. It is not Bill Curry. It is not Howard Simon. Um... 
Forrest Gregg. No, I said it's not Forrest, damn it! It's not Forrest Gregg! It is not Kramer! It it's is the not... best of WGR. This is the garbage you give me? Zach, who's the lineman? And I'm going to say Bill Curry. No, I just said it was about Curry, damn it! The Nightcap on WGR. Sports Radio 550. Yay! Yay! Hour two. What's up? Getting closer to Memorial Day weekend. Even it's a long weekend. I'm think are you when when's the proper time when you can say have a nice weekend to somebody? Like if you're not gonna see them by the weekend. This happened to me the other day. Yesterday, actually, I think it happened. Right? I think it was yesterday. Someone someone said have a nice weekend. Have a nice Memorial Day weekend. And I didn't say anything, but in my mind, I'm like, it's Tuesday or Monday or whatever it happened. And I don't know. If you don't see the person before the weekend, I think it's okay. But you can't be saying that on Monday. I mean, that's an eternity from the weekend. You got you got the whole work week to go before you get there. Even if it is a long weekend, Memorial Day weekend. Um, so that happened. That happened yesterday. Um, so Nate Geary did lie on Twitter. Or he didn't really lie, I just misread it. I read a tweet of his and immediately thought, oh, it's going to rain on Memorial Day. And he said Memorial Day weekend, which is correct. It's supposed to rain on Saturday and Sunday, but Monday is supposed to be pretty good. So I'm looking forward to that. And uh, we'll get some Stanley Cup playoff action, some Stanley Cup final action on Monday night. And that's always been a big annoyance to me. Stanley Cup final. It doesn't make sense. Okay? It, it doesn't make sense. NHL, put an S on the end of it. The NBA does it. Do it. Because no one wants to say final. Finals. It's finals. It's a series of games. Multiple games. If it was one game, you could call it the Stanley Cup final. But it's not one game. It's four to seven games. So you should call it the Stanley Cup finals. And officially... If I'm ever running the station Twitter account, or if I'm ever writing on the website, I'll do the correct thing. I'll write final. But if I'm talking to people, to friends, or if I'm tweeting with people, friends, we're saying finals. If I, and everybody's saying finals. So get it together, NHL. You've got a long list of things you need to get it together on. That's probably pretty far down the list, but it's on there. Throw that S on the end. Speaking of leagues needing to get it together... The NFL today, I mean, are you kidding with the Tyreek Hill stuff? Just an absolute embarrassment that your league that makes billions and billions and billions of dollars a year always talks about how they're doing these investigations, these internal investigations, uh, looking into different things that happens with their players. And Tyreek Hill, this, this thing has been out there for months, okay? Months. I mean, we were hearing about an accusation against him, I think, in February. And it really intensified last month. The day before the draft. It intensified when that audio came out. And you have not, you as a league, you know you're going to have to make a decision on it. You know you are. And you've yet to have a direct conversation with him. One, on anything. You haven't even talked to him. It's not that hard. Pick up the phone and call Tyreek Hill. 
It's not that that's going to give you, you know, the end result that you need to complete your investigation, but it's got to be part of it. And you look pretty flat-footed if it's May 22nd and you've yet to talk to the guy. Because at some point here, before the season, you're going to need a resolution. And that's in like four months, a little less. Which I guess is a pretty long time, now that I think about it. But you, you should, they should be on top of that already. If they really are supposed to be serious about this kind of stuff. And the personal conduct of their players. Which they always flaunt, and they always talk about it, and they always suspend guys for it. So if you're really serious about it, then how have you not talked to the guy yet? And Roger Goodell got up there today and said that they haven't done it, and they're waiting for the court to process. But the thing is, we had a time period between when the district attorney in Kansas City said there was not going to be charges and the recording. Like, there was a time period there where nothing was going to happen. Charges weren't coming. There was no recording at the time. You still didn't have a conversation with him? Because if you are being truthful and that you're waiting for the legal proceedings to work itself out first before you investigate thoroughly and make a decision, well, guess what? You had that opportunity. Because there was a point during this whole Tyreek Hill situation where the legal proceedings had come to an end. It seemed. And you still didn't do it. So I think that they're talking out of their own mouth, um, or they're talking out of two sides of their mouth, and whatever the saying is, I can't even think about it right now. But that was ridiculous. And that whole situation's ridiculous. And to me, that's why the NFL, all of that stuff is just a PR show. And that's how it feels, and their actions speak louder than their words do on it. Because there's an action right there where you could have talked to the guy, and that's not shouldn't even be the most important part of your investigation. But really what it does highlight is that their investigations, most of the time, might be bogus. And not even matter that much. So there's that. One more thing on the spring meetings that the NFL is having in Florida today, the overtime rule. Um, I wish they would have gone forward with that. It's not a huge deal to me, but... You know, at some point, if the Bills are going to be a playoff team, I'd like them, if they ever have to play Tom Brady, to get an opportunity to possess the ball themselves. Because it only seems fair. You, you want to get as far away as you can from the flip of a coin meaning anything to the game. It should only really determine proceedings and who gets it first. It should never have... You know, any, like, if you look at the, is it the New York Times that does this or ESPN, uh, 538, like the win probability. I think that's ESPN that does that. Win probability throughout the game. You should never have a situation where, say, going into overtime, you go to ESPN's win probability page and it says 50 50. And then after the coin flip and before the kickoff, that number changes. You should never get to a point where that happens. And it happens drastically. If you were to stay on that ESPN win probability page during the Kansas City Chiefs and the New England Patriots game, I I saw someone tweet about this the other day. It went up, it spiked up when New England was getting the ball first from like 50% to like 70% or 60%. And you should never be faced with a situation where the flip of a coin drastically increases one team's chances of winning because that has nothing to do with the game on the field. 
or it should have nothing to do with the game on the field. And if you want to hide behind tradition, I mean, tradition is really just a word that really old people that run leagues hide behind so they don't have to change anything. And tradition, to me, sometimes sports hides behind because they don't have a logical argument for why what they're doing makes sense. This is why I have a big problem with baseball, because I feel like this happens a lot of times in baseball, and I think this is one situation where it's happening in the NFL. The coin toss is stupid, and the Kansas City Chiefs' new overtime rule would have helped get away from that having any sort of importance on the game, and they not only are the owners not going for it, they're not even voting on it, which kind of sucks, I think, and I wish they would have done it. Uh, they're tabling it for next year, so I guess it's not a completely lost cause, but I hope they do eventually get around to, uh, to that type of rule. Even I don't need it to be the college football system, but get to something uh, close. All right, switching back to hockey, uh, we talked a lot about the Ryan O'Reilly trade, reminiscing on that early in the show, and we talked about that a lot today on the station, as it's been almost a year since that trade, and the Sabres uh, finished bottom five again, and the Blues, with Ryan O'Reilly, are going to the Stanley Cup Finals. And, see, so yeah, I said it there, like, I can't, I can't help it. It's Finals! I'm just going to keep saying it, and not, not even think about it. Um, but... Some reason to be hopeful here. If they sign Jeff Skinner, that's going to be good. I like the hire they eventually made with Ralph Kruger. That could have gone a lot worse. Jacques Martin's name had been thrown into the mix, so clearly that would have been a lot worse. Um, So I like the hire, and hearing what a lot of these guys we've had in the station have to say about him has me thinking even more positively about the hire because of how he acts with players, his relationship with players, and he comes off as a super smart guy, and he has the tons of respect from coaches that are in the league right now and coaches that I like that are in the league right now and one of those is Paul Maurice Winnipeg Jets head coach Um, when he was available a few years back I was thinking about him and like the idea of him for the Sabres I'm not sure that ever lined up time-wise but he's the Jets coach now and they're really good and they have a good young core of players he worked on Ralph Kruger's staff with Team Europe back at the World Cup of Hockey, so he had an in-person experience coaching underneath uh, Ralph Kruger. He was on the morning show yesterday. Great look at Ralph Kruger here. Here is Paul Maurice with Howard and Jeremy yesterday. He's been in a, kind of like in a both worlds of hockey, in European hockey for a long time, coaching Swiss team. And then a little bit he's got experience also with some NHL hockey with Edmonton. Although he was short, I believe this second chapter of his NHL coaching will be much longer. That is former Sabre Miroslav Shatan. He was on with the instigators yesterday talking about the new Sabres coach, Ralph Kruger. Uh, Shatan was the GM of Team Europe in the 2016 World Cup, and Ralph Kruger was the head coach, staying with that theme one of the guys on his coaching staff uh, for the European team that was the story of that tournament ended up finishing second and playing Canada in the final. Uh, Paul Maurice, the current head coach of the Winnipeg Jets, was on that staff, and he is kind enough to join us right now on our West Her Hotline to talk a little bit more about the new Sabres coach. Uh, Paul, it's Howard and Jeremy here in Buffalo. Good morning, and thanks for coming on with us today. Well, thanks for having me, folks. Good to hear from you. So, you know, for Sabre fans that are listening, what, in your time that you, you worked with uh, Ralph on the staff, what are some of the things that stood out to you as a as a fellow coach? You know what? I've known Ralph for a long time. As a matter of fact, he was a, a European scout for the Carolina Hurricanes about 10 or 15 years ago. And uh, 
we'd always end up at the drafts together and the coaches sit at the other end of the table, right? We don't do anything. So we'd sit and talk there for 10 hours and talk hockey. And that that was my first kind of introduction into him. When you think of, of where he's come from, you know, build that Swiss program. It's a complete underdog country at the time he took over uh, and they had to play that game. So he's technically really sound. He's, he's, he's learned how to beat better teams with the team that he had. Um, and then, so that that's the hockey part of it. I, I thought he did a really good job at Edmonton. So this is just kind of the coach's fraternity looking at a team that was really, really young, that had a lot of room to grow, um, but it was going to take time. They were a little bit more impatient there, but uh, certainly with my time at the World Cup, what was different about the World you, you You can talk to a guy, you can understand if he understands the game when you're done the conversation, but you need to see a guy in a room. Uh, to see how he works, he's got he's got an incredible presence in the room. He's he's a really strong speaker, understands the game well. But w- what I guess is most interesting to me when when I, when I travel around and you go to different cities and I run into one of the guys off the World Cup team, the, after you say hello and how's the family, the first question is, "Hey, have you talked to Ralph? Have you talked to mm-hmm. Ralph?" He made such an impression on not just the players but the equipment guys, the medical guys, his staff, management. Media, I think, as well. Everybody that was around him, he just gives off this incredible positive energy. And boy, I'll tell you, like, I mean, it starts at about 5 o'clock in the morning. It doesn't end up midnight. He just goes all day long. He's just wired kind of guy. He's just driven kind of guy. And that's why he's had the life experiences that he's had, that he's, his switch is always on. It's funny. I, I think you just covered five of my questions with one answer. <laughs> but but can, it's... I, 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 feel free. No, no, because it, it seems like you hit a lot of things. I, I want to cover one of the things for sure that you talked about his presence and his command in the room. That's almost word for word one of the things Jason Bottrell talked about in terms of searching for a new coach. He needed a guy, no offense to Phil Housley, but he needed a guy who had a presence in the room. What allows Ralph Kruger to have that presence? Experience, I think, more than anything. So just not non-hockey experience. So when you look back in, in his gaps and in his time between the Swiss team and, and then he goes to Edmonton, but there's some gaps in there. He, he's doing leadership consulting and leadership forums and he's speaking in front of large rooms so he has the experience of doing that and and hockey players can be tough you know i I think it's a great place if you want to learn how to public speak do it in front of a room full of (laughs) hockey players because you lose those guys real fast Hmm. and he's so he's got great experience to do that and you know what i I think he's, he's a really bright guy um Eloquent is is the right word in a certain room for him, but he can stand in front of a hockey room and hold that as well. So that that was one of the things, you know, as a you never get to do that as a head coach. And when you go into these tournaments, I got a chance to kind of stand in the corner of the room and watch the players' eyes and and try to learn from him how he stands, you know, how he uses his voice, all those things that come natural to him. It's it's really really important because there are times during the year you need the coach to be able to hold the room, to draw their attention, to get their attention, um, and he can do that for sure. Yeah, one thing I think is interesting to note, and a, a lot of coaches and personnel people do talk about how. The players have changed, and Paul, you've coached for a long time. So, you know, the difference in generation, whatever you want to say, um, does Ralph have the kind of mindset, the kind of personal skills, communications to be able to kind of adapt with the with times and the way that the players yeah. and their personalities have changed? So, I'm going to say Ralph's ahead of that curve in the point that this is the right time for his personality to be in the game. He, he's a real connector, and the biggest difference. 
when I first this was about 25 years ago, 1995, the players almost took care of themselves. They were their own little unit, right? There's no cell phones. There's no Twitter. There's no posses. There's no, hey, I got 10 guys, an agent, my strength coach, my skills coach, my nutritionist, my chef. I got 10 people that will tell me I'm right all the time. They got that answer in the locker room, and the players took care of themselves like that, and now it's not. Now you've got 22 individual corporations in your room, and they all need to be handled specifically, and they all need to be handled almost daily at times. Not every player is like that, but they need a lot more one-on-one interaction from somebody, and Ralph can do that. First of all, he's got the energy level to do it. He starts drinking coffee as early as anybody and he keeps going. Uh, but he, he, he has that ability to connect with different people on different levels, that's a leadership thing. It's also a personality thing. It's who he is. It's how he's wired. And I think the NHL now is exactly the kind of place where a personality like Ralph's will flourish. I think it's interesting on that point, Paul. Um, you know, the more we've heard from from former players, uh, Thomas Vanek was on talking about the, the experience right. with him at the, on your World Cup team. And the more I hear from players, I hear a lot of talk about it isn't just X's and O's. It isn't just maybe, you know, motivating guys. It's also getting to know players on a personal level, like caring about them, their their wives, their girlfriends, their kids, their whatever. Um, how, how do you think, how important is that from your standpoint as a head coach, getting to know guys beyond hockey? And is that another strength in uh, what you see from Ralph Kruger? So I think it might be the most important thing now, and that's changing. And to be honest with you, it's something I'm working on, that, that ability to reach out to guys. Because like I said, when I came into the league, that wasn't true. You know, the players and the coaches at that time were separated, right? We yelled at them. They did what they wanted, and then we yelled at them more. Now, if you're going to push a guy hard now, there has to be more than just – there has to be a deeper connection just than a player-coach relationship. Because, like I said, they've got so many other places they can go for positive reinforcement. If they're only getting negative uh, communication from the coach, eventually the coach is going to be wrong. you got ten people telling him he's wrong, the coach is going to be wrong. So you need to have that connection with a person and with a player beyond the game so that when you are kind of turning the screws a little bit and you are getting a little hard on them, they understand that you care about them. I, I, that, that is new, and, I, and, and that's, so that would be something I would say I learned from Ralph. Like my, my, our head guy, Jay McMaster, our head equipment guy, was on that staff as well, and we've talked about it. And, and Ralph made him feel like he was a part of the team, like an important piece to what we were doing. So that, that ability to connect with somebody, not just a player, but part of the staff, is the new generation of the game. And it may be better. You know, it's, it's a more personal way to deal daily. I, I, he's, and I, I'm saying all these things, but he's not soft. Like, Ralph has no problem going in and letting it fly, and he can hold a room pretty good, too. And, you know, he's a big guy. He's got lots of energy. He's a real, real fit guy. He can... He can handle himself. So I think the balance that he has there is going to work real well. I, I only know a few of the Sabres players um, having had them, but I, I think they're really going to enjoy the direction he'll take the team. We're with Paul Maurice, Winnipeg Jets head coach, talking about uh, Ralph Kruger. So, you know, you mentioned, you know, he only had the one year as a head coach in Edmonton, but when you coached against his Oilers teams, what are some of the things that stood out about how they played and what you saw as an opposing coach? So that's a, it's a really good question. One year isn't enough to draw that mm-hmm. investment. I think you have to go back to his Swiss teams, right? So very, very quick um, and, and on the puck and detailed without being constricted in how they play. So the challenge for the underdog team, and I think maybe if we were looking at the playoffs this year, we might say maybe Carolina fits this bill really well. Um, 
they know their game, but, but they can't play it slow. They've got to play really, really fast. So there's there's details. You have to have details in your game, but you can't have so many. The players are constantly slowing down to make reads. So that's the danger. The, the nice part about a guy like Ralph is he's got experience. So he's not coming in and trying to prove to the players that he knows the game, so he's going to give them a 1,000 rules on how to play because he's that smart. You, you, you don't need that many. That would be something that I personally took from Ralph in terms of how he prepared his World Cup team. So I'll give you an example. We got beaten around Robin by Canada pretty handily, and I went through and, and cut the game. So I edit the game after, and I finished with about 112 edits. He just laughed and he said, "Okay, you can use 10. So, that, <laughs> oh, that worked. Ralph, I can't. I, I can't tell. I can't tell the story of this game on 10 edits." He said, "That's no problem. Just find the most important 10, and we'll mm. go from there." Yeah. So that really stuck with me, and it was a challenge to get it down. So he has that understanding that you know, you, you're a new coach. You want to come in and teach everything, but what he'll be good at is finding the most important things. I thought it was you brought up the World Cup again, and I thought it was interesting when Vanek was on the other day, uh, Paul. One of the things he had talked about. Was one of the things he liked was that Ralph was it would have no problems like he felt very comfortable delegating responsibilities and Thomas specifically mentioned you and that team that you I guess you did a lot of the X's and O's and a lot of st- a lot of work like that and he said that's one of the things he liked that sometimes a head coach is too control oriented and he has no problem letting his guys help out for the betterment of the team. So there's there goes. The- an example of his organizational skills. So what was unusual about that team is when you look at the other coach on the bench, it was Brad Shaw. So all the other teams in Canada was a dominant team. All the other teams had a bunch of head coaches on their bench, but Ralph knew what he needed was a defensive coach. He needed a guy who ran the back end of the bench. No, no head coaches do, right? You almost always have a defenseman there mm-hmm. that's running the defense. So he added Brad Shaw because he could figure out the dynamic and he and I had worked together, uh, before, like I said, we had had a relationship, and I was kind of current on what was going on in the National Hockey League. So that was kind of my, my role in there was kind of the, 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 the X's and O's of the games, but his was fitting all that into how our team was playing. So he, he does. He delegates because he's got lots of confidence. So when, when a meeting's done, when I've given him my spiel and my 112 clips, and he said I need 10, um, he, he can do that because he understands it. He, he passes it off because he understands. He doesn't pass off pieces of the game that he doesn't understand because uh, he can't do it. He passes off pieces of the game that he understands, but somebody else can run and he can monitor. So he, there's a certain confidence, I think, as a head guy you have to have. This guy's had a lot of experience, right? He's, I know he hasn't been in the NHL, but he yep. has a tremendous amount of hockey and people experience. I think he's a great hire. I, 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 I'm... I'm of all, I've got Pete DeBoer is probably my best friend coaching for San Jose, so I'm pulling for him. Uh, and after that, I think you know easily Ralph hmm. Kruger would be the one guy I'm cheering for in the NHL. I think he's just he's great for the league. He's a great guy to have in Buffalo. It's kind of a Winnipeg market. You know, you can really attach yourself to it, have a good family life, uh, really enjoy the people and the team. And I think they're going to be really happy. I think it's great for Buffalo. Well, the final thing I want to ask you, you touched on just a moment ago. Five years out of the league, do you think that's any concern that he had been away from hockey for that long while working with Southampton? Oh, no. You know what? First of all, he's going to bring with him a whole different understanding of culture and how to build a group. When you look at what he did with that team and the organization of that team and the development program that he built, he brings that with him. Five years out of the league is only important if you've been out for five years, but he's coached of the World Cup. He and I talk mm-hmm. all the time, and I'm not the only guy. I mean, I know he talks to some 
really, really high end, really, really smart people on a regular basis. He's a, he's a connector. He's a wired guy. So he hasn't been out for five years. He's just been planning for his next job. I mean, and everything that he's done, he'll bring to Buffalo. Paul Maurice joining us and uh, giving us his thoughts on Ralph Kruger. Paul, thank you. Appreciate you coming on with us and giving us some time this morning. Thank you very much for coming on the show and uh, enjoy your summer. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys, and uh, the best of luck to, to all of you in the Sabres. You bet. Thank you. There's Paul Maurice. Pretty good get by the morning show yesterday, talking to Ralph Kruger. I uh, like what I hear. I like the idea anyway. We will take a time out in a minute here. Um, if you don't follow me on Twitter, so I, I was interested because jerseys have come up over the past couple days. Fans are pretty upset that there's not going to be royal blue Um change to royal blue at least it seems that way given what the 50th anniversary crest looked like for the sabers as it was navy um fans haven't been really happy about that and it got me thinking about like these jerseys kind of remind me of the bills jerseys that i saw growing up like i'm 23 and i feel like my age comes up way too much but whatever 23 my first memories is like Bledsoe 2002, and those are the dark Navy Bills jerseys that were just just bad. They were just bad. And the Bills had no success in those uniforms at all. And these Sabre jerseys kind of rival those Bills jerseys for like the least amount of success in a uniform in Buffalo sports history. So I went back and I looked at the Sabres record and how they did in the playoffs for each of their uniforms, at least uh, in the last 20 years. And I was a little surprised. Maybe not. Maybe if I thought about it at all, I wouldn't have been surprised. But it was a little surprised to see how much more successful they were in one of their uniforms than in the rest of them, and how bad they've been in these. Uh, I'll detail that a little bit more when uh, we come back and talk more about Ryan O'Reilly and reminiscing on the trade from last year, as well as uh, comparison to Rasmus Ristolainen that I've been tossing out here tonight. Eight hundred three hundred five fifty is the phone number if you want to get in on the conversation. You can also, I'll read through some text when we come back. I got a good question on the text line that I want to get to, and we'll do that when we come back as well. It's the Nightcap with Jody Biasi here on WGR. Josh Allen, to me, I see a lot of special things about his game. I mean, we're talking about an arm that's in the same class as the Patrick Mahomes. Three games of almost rushing for 100 yards. I feel like if any other quarterback in football did that this year, every highlight show would have led with that talk. But because it's Josh Allen and Buffalo, it just wasn't sexy enough. Chris Sims means well there. Buffalo can be sexy. Why not? What's a problem there? These TV networks. They're going to have a, a fun team, I think. I don't know how good they're going to be. I have them projected about eight wins. There's uh, Sims talking about Allen. And his upside, Chris Sims is a big Josh Allen fan. He had him number one on his board going into 2018 last year. He has reason to believe, and he mentioned that today on One Bills Live. We'll play a little bit of that before we get out of here tonight, just a little bit. Um, that he had the he thinks the Cardinals had him first on their board, the Browns had him second on their board, the Giants had him as their number one quarterback, and the, he thinks the Bills had them as their number one quarterback. But I have to think, I, I tend to think he's not, or he wasn't, because. They've never really come right out and directly said that, that I can remember. Um, they've kind of danced around it, and that makes me think, and I've always been led to believe that Darnold was the number one guy on their board, and that's what I would have guessed, or that's what I would guess 
was their board. Darnold one, and then probably Allen two, not knowing where Baker Mayfield would have fell in there. Um, so I'm not sure about that part, but he's here now. Well, like I said, we'll play a little bit of Chris Sims uh, when we when we, uh, continue here. Um, so I teased this before the break. I went through thinking about the Sabres and how bad they've been in these current jerseys, the navy blue with the old logo, like the classic logo. And there's been some, you know, some edits. The collar has been a little different. They took the silver out, thank God, finally. Um, so they made some changes, but just like that overall, the overall era, 2010 to now. Navy jerseys with the classic logo. Very bad record. 273, 341, and 90. 273, 341, and 90. That is 430 losses and 373 wins. That's bad. One playoff appearance in that time, and it came in the first season, uh, 2010-11, was the first season that they wore those as their full-time jerseys. It was kind of the third jersey before that. Um, But with these as their full-time jerseys, they have one playoff appearance in just about 10 years now and no playoff series wins. Easily the worst era in Sabre history. Jerseys before that, the Slug, which we all kind of hated, some more than others, good record. 2006 to 2010, record of 173 112 and 38. And in that span, three playoff appearances, four playoff series wins. Pretty good. That's pretty good. I'm here to tell you the red and black was the most successful era in Sabre history. Arguably, their best two seasons in franchise history came in red and black. 75, you probably would have to put in there. I might want to argue that it's not, but of course, I'm a. Uh, you know, a little biased in that from that perspective. 1996 to 2006, when the Sabres wore red and black, a record of 345, 279, and 24. A good record. Not amazing, but a good record. Six playoff appearances in that 10 years. Nine playoff series wins. Almost a playoff series win per year. And you had 99, where they almost won the cup and they got robbed there. And 2006, where you almost won the cup, and they got robbed there. One by the refs, the other by, I guess you could say, the hockey gods. And those were probably the two years you came closest to winning a Stanley Cup, and it happened in the red and black. There's kind of been, uh, social media has brought this out a little bit, a bit of a war on red and black. The the old guard, the, I don't, I don't want to say the old guard, but like the, the Sabre fans that grew up with Perot and the French Connection and Danny Gare, like that is the Sabres to them. And they don't want to hear about red and black. Like that was a, I, I get why anyone in that age group would immediately think, that's not the Sabres. Like that was a joke. That was the Reguses and they got arrested. And I don't want to think of that when I think of the Sabres. But, and, and the Sabres kind of hold that attitude as well. For the most part, they try to ignore and try to brush aside the fact that they ever wore red and black. Other than a intro video for like games where there was like a red and black video that was, I think, video game themed. Other than that, and of Dominic Hashik bobblehead, which I'm staring at right now, that's here in the studio. Like that's it. 
I remember when Hashik's banner went up, and it really wasn't, it was kind of a conversation, but not huge conversation, that Hashik's banner went up in blue and gold, and it's almost like it, like it shouldn't even have been debated. Because now you're never going to have a banner in red and black for a player. It's not going to happen. But it wasn't even a conversation there. And if the team had really took a hard look at that and looked at, hey, where, when were Dominic Hashik's best years as a Buffalo Sabre? And you could have made a serious argument for his banner being in red and black, and it never happened. Um, so I, I just don't like the fact that it, that era was so successful. You had some years there, of course, that were about as dark as it gets with no owner and the team being bad and a lockout, but you also had some of the brightest times in your team's history. 99 going all the way to the Cup and 2006 where you really should have won the uh, won the Stanley Cup. Um Looking at Hashik's numbers, he played three years in blue and gold and four years in blue and gold, one of which he was not the starter for. And he played one, two, three, four, five seasons in uh, in black and red. So I would have liked to have seen that go in black and red, but obviously that did uh, that did not happen. He was. I'm looking at his stats right now. I did not realize he was that old when he went to Detroit. I was young. Give me a break. 37 when he went to Detroit. Is that right? Well, yeah, his career started so late at 26. That that made, that does make sense, actually. Um, all right, we'll take a timeout here, and we'll come back with last call on the nightcap. We'll play a couple more clips from Chris Sims. He had a lot of good things to say on the Bills today. Um, some optimistic things to say on the Bills, especially at quarterback. And I, I like to hear that part because I've heard we've heard national guys talk up the Bills because of their free agent additions on the offensive line at wide receiver and for their defense. But what I haven't heard a ton from the national guys, and especially the guys who watch film like Chris Sims, is, hey, they're going to be good because of Josh Allen. There hasn't been a ton of that out there, and Sims brought that. So I'll play a little bit more of that when we come back and talk about that. If you want to get on the conversation, 803-0550 is your chance to do it before we get out of here at 9 o'clock. You can also... I promise I'm going to answer that question from the text line. We'll do that too when we come back. 555.50 if you want to get on the text line too. It's the Nightcap with Jody Biasi here on WGR. I think with this offense, the New England offense, and some of the talent, and now having the you know the offensive line looks like it's going to be mended here in Buffalo. I just I think Buffalo is one of those teams to watch out for this year. I think they're a playoff caliber team, and I really would be shocked if Josh Allen doesn't go out there and assert himself as one of the better quarterbacks in football. Chris Sims, I told you you like Josh Allen. Would be shocked if Allen wasn't one of the best quarterbacks in football. That is lofty. That is, what, top five, top ten? I think I'd take top 15 for him, me personally. He for what, what, like, what would he have to do to be top ten? Like, he would have to... Like, what are we talking about if we are the next year saying, is Josh Allen a top 10 quarterback in the league? The Bills are probably really good, like 10 and 6. Uh, he probably had a really good year passing with the same type of year rushing because that's really what it is. If you take away his rushing stats, which is not, I know that's not fair to do to him, um, and I don't want to do that because I got annoyed when people did that to Tyrod Taylor because rushing was part of what made him effective and Allen rushing is part of what made him effective. But the only thing that would hold you back 
from, hey, he's going to be an amazing quarterback in the league right now, was he struggled mightily as a passer in year one. He had a lot of great throws, don't get me wrong, but he had some bad ones too. Not just decision-making, but like accuracy. And that's probably always going to be there, but the bad throws decision-wise is what you got to eliminate. The Green Bay pick where he just chucks it up and it's just brutal. It's a brutal pick. There's a uh, pick against the Jets where he's scrambling out to his right and he tries to make a throw up the field and it's just not even close. It's right to the Jet. Like Those are the throws you want to get rid of and he won't get to that best, you know, one of the best quarterbacks in football if he, he continues to do stuff like that. Here's Sims, uh, one more here on Allen. It's kind of the gift and the curse. When you can throw a ball 50 yards in a line and not really step into it, you go, oh, I can fit it in there. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, he's got to learn to kind of have a, a better gauge of when to take those chances, when to be aggressive. There's nothing wrong with the five-yard completion sometimes and letting the guy run after the catch. He's learning on the fly. Chris Sims. He's a good mind for quarterbacks. Worked for the Patriots a little bit. Was an NFL quarterback. His dad was a quarterback, and he provides a lot of good analysis. So I'm impressed um, with that analysis there because I think that's a smart guy in football. And not all the smart guys right now are in on Josh Allen being great. In fact, I think many of them are pretty hesitant to say that. But uh, here's Sims coming right out and saying, I think that's a, that's a good sign. That's a good sign. All right, that's it for me. Thanks, everybody, for listening tonight. Thanks, everybody, for chiming in. Oh, before I do get out of here, i got to answer the one – um, the one text question that I've been promising. Someone asked, would you trade Ristolainen for Ryan O'Reilly straight up today? And for me, that's an easy yes. I love Ryan O'Reilly um, as a player, and I've said that a lot tonight. So, yeah, I definitely would trade uh, Ristolainen for O'Reilly, but not going to happen. It'd be cool, though. Stay tuned. Pit Reporter's coming up next. Race fans, we got you covered. 9 to 10, so stay tuned for that. And I'll be back tomorrow night, 7 to 9. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and have a good night. It's the Nightcap with Jody Biasi here on WGR. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See t